Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Jarobs, in for Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The hardworking stunt people behind our favorite action films are the subject of the new book, Danger on the Silver Screen. Later this hour, we'll talk to the book's author, Atlanta film buff, Scott McGee. But first, relationships with fathers can be complex and layered and black fatherhood in america can also carry with it an extra layer of unresolved trauma dating back to enslavement in this country a new art exhibition on the subject titled presence a celebration of black fatherhood is on view now at the zucott gallery through august 14th The show represents a living illustration of its theme as its featured African-American artists include Aaron Henderson, the father of the show's curators, Omari and Onaje Henderson. The exhibition launched in coordination with Father's Day and Juneteenth weekend, and when the Hendersons recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis, Onaje began by explaining how they collected artwork around the theme of the Black experience of fatherhood. We initially had the conversation in about February. We were recently been deemed uh, partners with Microsoft, so we're Microsoft Technology Partners. And, and one of our things we were going to be doing with them uh, was an exhibition. They asked us, what do you want to do? Because they were building a virtual exhibition around a subject matter. And, and we knew that our first exhibit would open in June post-pandemic. And we wanted to, to figure out something that would work well. During that time, there have been more and more conversations about uh, mental health, Black men, Black fathers. And even locally, there had been, uh, unfortunately, a couple of suicides, uh, some people we were aware of. And the idea that this focus is not necessarily talked about much at all. And just uh, the idea that most of us had, most of my friends in my circles, have had their father's presence in their lives. And so when we began the conversation, it initially came from actually our our gallery assistant, Jasmine, just asked me, what about this as a possible idea for an opening? And it was perfect. Secondly, what we did was we then began to think about artists that we would choose for this. And, you know, my brother and I, Omari, along with our business partner, Troy, we at the gallery for about 14 years now. So we know some of the artists pretty well. And, and then at the time I was thinking about the conversation that I'd had with some of the artists in regard to their fathers or being a father. And I wanted to get perspectives from both. So men and women. So we have in this exhibition, we chose four women artists and five men artists who have varying 
participation in regards to this. So some some of the women, for example, may have been a daddy's girl, or they may have not experienced uh, understanding. Even the the one in particular says she didn't understand even the value of men until she met her fiance. And growing up, how she was taught something different. And so those varying uh, ideas, and even down to there being fathers who are raising children that are not biologically theirs, but they are theirs, or those who who raise children in the community. Those were the artists that we chose for this exhibition. And then we allowed them to create new works for this exhibit. Mm-hmm. Aaron, please tell us about your work in the show. What aspect of your experience of fatherhood does this work illustrate? Well, I have, I think, uh, about six paintings in the in the uh, show, and I am a narrative artist, so I'm working from stories, and uh, it was hard not to make the work that was created kind of autobiographical in it, and uh, I also had to really think about my father and my grandfather and some of the struggles that they dealt with in the time they lived and, and what have you, and so... Uh, one of my uh, pieces uh, is called Songs for My Father that deals with music and how my father would come home and he would put on some music and relax and get himself a beer. And and so one of the paintings deals with that whole aspect of that. And then there's another painting that deals with, uh, it was, it's actually three paintings that deals with pieces of a man. And it talks about the joy of fatherhood and uh, also the rage and the sadness that can go along with it. And it's, it's uh, loosely based on a song by uh, uh, Gil Scott Heron that's, that's titled Pieces of a Man. And it's actually three paintings that shows those images of joy, sadness, and rage. The full spectrum. Yes. Omari and Onache, growing up in the Henderson family, how did you pick up your dad's love for art and creative expression? Well, this is Omari. I think we were just actually immersed in the arts as a kid, as just growing up. We were always around it. So my dad was was an engineer, or is an engineer, as Onaje and I are. We all have engineering degrees. And when he came home from work, when we were kids, he would go to his studio, which was in our garage, and he would paint. That was his way of of relieving the stress from the day, from calming down, from relaxing. That was his outlet. And so for us, it was very normal to see that. I think as we got older, we realized that that wasn't a normal thing in everyone's (laughs) household. But when we were younger, that's what we always saw. So we were always around it. And so our parents, our mom and our dad actually encouraged us to explore creativity throughout our entire lives. Even though he was an engineer that was also an artist and we became engineers, we always had this creative side of us that we were encouraged to explore. In addition to that, all of the different festivals and things that happened around Atlanta, you know, the movie festivals, you know, food festivals, just kind of all of these different things that were happening. We got a chance to experience those. So they would take us to the Jewish Film Festival, for instance. So they would take us to hear someone speak about a particular book that they had written. So we were just constantly immersed in that culture. And I think 
over the years, we just grew to really have this love for the arts. And it's, it's funny because now with my kids, I'm actually doing the same thing. I'm ensuring that they attend plays, they go and see True Colors plays or or they, they attend the High Museum, they spend a lot of time at Zuccott Gallery. I'm trying to make sure that, that they're also immersed in that same culture because I think it really just makes us very well-rounded when we can really have this infusion of arts into our lives. Oh, this is just so beautiful to hear and now how it's multi-generational. Hearing about your dad's life as an engineer and yours and then how the latter part of his day was spent in creative self-expression through art made me think enough with dividing people into this right brain, left brain thing. You know, you you can be both. You can be creative. You can can do it all. (laughs) You can have a scientific mind and a creative, self-expressive way about you. You know, engineers are folks who are problem solvers. And as a narrative artist, I kind of conjure up a narrative or I've done some research. And then from that, I We'll think about how can I best visually show this? What can I do? And then you got to decide on what medium and that kind of thing and what, what you're going to be working with, uh, what models you might need and that kind of thing. So, but engineers are just problem solvers and we're using math and science to solve the problems. And there's, a, in producing artwork, it's, you know, if you get into it, the pain and all that has a lot of chemistry and everything It's really a science associated with it. And, uh, as an artist, I've really never had any formal training in art. It's just something that I've always been able to do. And and for a long time, I thought everybody could do it, and they just didn't want to do it. <laughs> so uh, so that's that's kind of where, where I stand on that. And, and I also have worked for a number of years with, you know, STEM uh, programs with colleges, not only uh in Atlanta, but uh, around the country. So I still, you know, still do some work in that area as well. You know, what, you know what's, what's really interesting as well in that is that even in the gallery, people always ask us how we even got into this side of the, what this business in general, you know, it seems like it would make more sense that we would have an engineering firm as opposed to an art gallery. But I think the problem solving aspect is one that you, you recognize in almost everything. You know, once you're an engineer, you say, okay, what are we trying to solve for? And the idea of why are we collecting more culture comes up, right? So how do we get that? How do we how do we start that? How do we get more young people into collecting culture? And how do we now uh, even deal with in, in regards to education? So we'll, you know, we, we even host field trips in the gallery. And now with this virtual gallery, some things we're doing through our partnership with Microsoft, we're going to be able to do field trips outside of the, the state, outside of the country, to be able to then bring this further along. So what engineering has taught us is how to take these uh, problems that we face every single day and say, okay, we can either talk about the problem or we can become solutions. And so, and it's everywhere, right? So like we've chosen this, this niche and now we're trying to figure out ways of, of looking at a system and saying, okay, why has it always been done this way? Now, how can we make it work for us? Hmm. You all have commented on the partnership with Microsoft This exhibition is accompanied by a virtual online gallery, a first for Zucat. How does this other medium 
within the exhibition bring greater depth to the gallery goer, the viewer's experience? I think the beauty of it is that you're now able to connect in a different way. So, so for example, a lot of times our collectors who don't necessarily even live in Atlanta, we just have to send images to them. So now they, they can literally go in through the link and explore the gallery. We created a, a digital space that looks fairly realistic and they can zoom in on pieces, they can look at them, but then they can also click the images and there's more content. So now you can hear from the artist. You can hear videos or watch videos from the artist. You can hear narratives in, in, the, in the artist's words. So it adds that element to it to where now you understand what the artist was thinking when they created the piece, why their motivation behind why they created the pieces. And so it adds this other dimension that sometimes even when coming into the gallery, you don't get if the artist isn't present. So it mm -hmm. allows you to understand more about the work and connect directly with it that way as well. Now, I will say there's nothing more beautiful than being in person but this is, a, this is another way of, of exploring it. Second to being in person, there's nothing like it. In addition to that, it gives us a global reach. So our gallery is located in Castleberry Hills in, in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta. And now the virtual gallery provides that experience to people all over the world. So now it allows us to continue to tell these very important stories. And this is really part of who we are is the fabric of America. It's American history. It is, you know, our moment in time here. And I think it, it gives us the opportunity to share that across the globe now. And so that is really important for our mission of continuing to tell, tell the stories of Black people, Black people in America, and, and really provide some context around that with the videos and those types of things that, that really helps the viewer understand these narratives. It truly enhances that reach and gives us an opportunity to, to kind of change the narrative around some of these stories, especially as it relates in this exhibit to Black men. Yeah. The exhibition contains works by nine artists, including Aaron Henderson. Can you describe for us some of the pieces just a few that stand out among the other artists, a few that stand out for you. Uh, I can speak to one in particular. There's a piece by Horace and Hotep in the exhibition that speaks to sometimes the, the men who, are, who have been present in your life you may not even be aware of. And so there's, a, there's an image of a young man on the top of a ladder. And if you look at the, the rungs of the ladder, instead of there being you know, actual steps going up, there's actually hands that are going up, clasp hands. And so basically saying like, you, got, you get to your success a lot of times by those who have helped elevate you, you may never recognize were there. And sometimes you take it for granted. It may have been that, that football coach or that, that school teacher or these other people that are in your life or behind the scenes that have guided you and led you to this place that you may not even recognize. And visually, he shows in a way with the young man at the top of, at the top of this ladder and over him, it's almost like saying sky's the limit, you know? And, and, the, the idea that this constant elevation is occurring, uh, sometimes we don't even recognize. And it's all these hands that are below you that you have no idea that we're there. Hmm. More attention is being paid now to the experiences of Black fathers in public discourse, subjects overlooked or overly generalized in our culture. 
How does the art in this show help address those misconceptions and blind spots? Oh, I, I think the, the art in this exhibit, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but it shows all of the emotions that go into being a Black father or a Black man in America. And I think the the one thing that we tend to see in the media is usually anger. There's usually a lot of anger or discourse or and what we're able to show is that that is true. There is some of that. There is some anger, but there's also this joy and there's also this sense of being a protector and provider for your family. And the exhibit is able to really take those aspects and really shine a light on those other things that we don't typically see in the media today. And I think that's what makes it unique. It doesn't exclude some of the things that we typically see. It also paints the picture of the entire man. It's like everything that's going on in our lives today. You know, again, tell it, creating this opportunity to be able to tell these stories and, and share these narratives that, that really tell the, the entire story of what it means to be a Black father in America. I think that's why it was so important for us to have so many different perspectives in the show and having one piece in particular I'm thinking about is uh, by Charlotte Riley Webb and it's called it's In the Waiting. And it's a, just an image of a father and a child fishing. And what she's talking about in this piece is that it's not about <laughs> the actual catching fish, it's that time you spend while waiting and that time you get with one another. And those are where you learn your lessons. Those are the, are the times that you spend together. And sometimes as adults now, you may have even taken it for granted when you think about times you may have spent with your, your father, it may have been in that quiet, you may have learned something, or it may have been during that time that you had a conversation that you may not have had before. And I think part of this is also trying to show that even the way we, we're socialized in regards to how men communicate with one another or with, with their children in society is not necessarily true on a personal level. So we're seeing these stories and this evidence of these men who have been present, who have shown up who have loved their children and i think this is actually more of a narrative that's probably more true than not versus what society or what media tries to show about black men and black fatherhood and so having these different conversations and showing that it's really an open letter in regards to men fathers and that love that these men have for their communities families and children um, that's often not seen Zucott Gallery curators and brothers Onaje and Omari Henderson. They were joined by their father, Aaron Henderson, whose art is featured in Zucott Gallery's new exhibition, Presence, a Celebration of Black Fatherhood. The show is on view through August 14th, and more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Atlanta author Scott McGee shares the secrets of stunt work in his new book, Danger on the Silver Screen. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. When thinking about legendary action films, from Mad Max to The Matrix, there's one thing that they all have in common, the often underappreciated craft of stunt work. Atlanta author and film historian Scott McGee is highlighting the importance of the profession with his new book, Danger on the Silver Screen. Breaking down thrilling stunts from the last century, the book serves as not only a guide to stunt work in cinema, but as a celebration of the bravery and ingenuity of the people behind some of movies' most magical moments. The author joins me now via Zoom. Scott McGee, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Kim. It's just, it's such an honor to be here. Well, the book was thoroughly enjoyable, and I'd like to start just by asking you what inspired you to take a deep dive into the world of stunt professionals. Well, I've been a movie buff pretty much all my life, and uh, I've read and and studied quite a bit of the filmmaking craft and history, from directors to certain work of certain actors. And there are very few books that look at stunt work seriously. There are a number of books, really well-made books that tell a history of stunt work. But what I wanted to do was look at specific films that kind of tell a story of how stunts have have evolved and how they are used by filmmakers to tell a story. And it was important to me to tell it in a way that was gettable, that you know, any layperson, any general reader, even somebody who doesn't know who Tom Mix is, for example, and that may be quite a few people, they would get an understanding that the work that the men and women that put into these action scenes and sequences and work, that it's an art and a science. And it's it's important to acknowledge as such. Understandably. And you mentioned that you were trying to lay out a story. Did that influence which films you decided to highlight? It did. It had a great, great impact. For the longest time that I've been formalizing an an approach to this book, even well before I even had a publisher, I had envisioned talking about 30 to 50 films. And within that number, I felt that I could tell the story, give a rough picture of how stunts have evolved and the primary people that pushed it forward. And in some cases, there were films that involved the same people. And it felt almost redundant. For example, one of the chapters I talk about, the 1971 film, The French Connection, which has a a famous car chase in the film. Well, there's another film from 1973 
called the seven ups and it too has a harrowing car chase that in some respects surpasses what they did in french connection well both of those car chases involved a lot of the same people primarily the stunt coordinator and one of the drivers a fellow named bill hickman and so because it involved the same people and also involved a car chase i couldn't include the seven ups because i i had already kind of told that story of how bill hickman and the challenges of of uh, shooting a a car chase at at speed within a, a city i'd already told that with the french connection so yeah there was a matter of choosing which could best tell the story and which kind of felt superfluous well, you did a good job of spanning the craft over a hundred years. I believe you start out right around 1916. And I was wondering what professions did stunt workers come from? They came from all over. Just a, a handful of sources that these nascent stunt people came from would be rodeos, pilots who came out of World War One, people who worked in the circus acrobats, athletes. A lot of people were professional steeplejacks, meaning people that would climb tall buildings or other high uh, structures. Like human fly situation? Like human fly situations, yes. And I, uh -huh, I do talk uh -huh. about that in one of the films. And, you know, a lot of them, they came to Hollywood with the ability to kind of show off a, a certain sense of bravery, a willingness to pull off these stunts. You know, it's important to remember that in the early days of motion pictures, there was no such thing as a, as a special effect. There were no such things as miniatures. And when your script called for, say, a woman to run along, along the top of a moving freight train, you had to find a woman who was willing to run along the top of a moving freight train. And that's what, that's just what they did. There's a serial called the hazards of Helen that came out in 1915, I believe. And it starred a woman named Helen Holmes, who was also her own stunt woman. She actually did perform a lot of her own stunts and she didn't come from a particularly dangerous background, but she was willing and able to do these, these stunts. And I, I should add, do them in long dresses. Oh, wow. You know, I learned quite a bit of terminology from reading the book, such as stunts are also called gags, but probably my favorite terminology that I learned was yucca nutty. Can you explain what that oh. is? <laughs> yeah, yucca nutty. That was a, a phrase that isn't used that often in other histories of stunt work, but I stumbled across it in an article in some fan magazine, and it refers to the type of wood that furniture was made of coming from a yucca plant. It appeared to be a strong piece of furniture, but in reality, it was very brittle and would break quite easily over somebody's head. And so the phrase yucca nutty was a terminology to su suggest that perhaps somebody was hit too much in the head with some of that furniture, even though it broke away quite easily, but perhaps they were, they were hitting the head a little bit too much, causing them to be able to take on work that perhaps they should have said no to. <laughs> There's a lot of quotes from stunt professionals in the book. And one of them is from a stunt woman named Jenna, is it pronounced Canal? 
Yes, Jenna Cannell. She's a working stunt woman and actor today. Her quote in your book about fear is spectacular. Jenna is, a, I should note, she is local Atlantan. Her last name is spelled K-A-N-E-L-L. And she told me in an interview that as a director and actor and as a stunt performer, she chooses to use what she calls fear. And she said, I lean into it. I lean into the fear. For me, fear makes me feel very alive. I've dealt with depression my whole life, and I'm always looking for ways to live with it rather than fight against it. And something about doing stunts that I find scary is that it pushed me to be in the present moment. If you're not present, you're not going to see the hit coming, or you're not going to be able to react correctly, or you're not going to know what your partner is doing end quote. That kind of thinking really foots up to a lot of the experiences that other stuntmen and women have and had that I interviewed, meaning that if you are not wholly present in the execution of whatever you're doing, there's a very good chance you might get hurt. And so it, it stunt performing is really, it's not just a skill of the body, but it's, a, it's especially a skill of the mind. For sure. One of the films that's highlighted was a favorite of mine growing up. I think it was actually a favorite of my mother's and I inherited it, but it's a mad, 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 mad world. Why is this film important to stunt work? Well, Mad, Mad World is, first of all, a it's a lunatic comedy. It's almost (laughs) three hours long. It's got an all-star cast and it is one of the most manic movies you'll, you'll ever see. The reason why it's important is because it it's one of the first films. I don't know if it's the first, but it is one of the first films where the stunt coordinator, as well as the stunt supervisors for aerial sequences, meaning anything having to do with airplanes, are credited in the opening credits of the film. The fact that stunt people were given credit at all was a very, very rare thing in Hollywood prior to the late sixties, it just really wasn't done that often. And this is one of the first films where they were given credit front and center. The man who is in, in charge of the stunts on the ground, so to speak, anything having to do with high falls or particularly with vehicles was a, a man named Carrie Lofton. And the stunt scenes involving airplanes involved um, two men, one uh, named Paul Mance and another named Frank Tallman. And in the course of this three hours, you see so many stunts involving cars, speeding cars, crashing cars, people falling off of buildings or climbing up on tall ladders. It's nuts. Yeah. A lot of comic mayhem. And a lot of them had to do with airplanes too. You know, there's one scene where an airplane crashes through a a Coca-Cola billboard. And it was done for real. I mean, it wasn't CG. So that I wanted to include because it it kind of puts stunt work on the map in terms of making the stunt men and stunt women notable personages themselves. As I note in the book, Carrie Lofton was actually interviewed by Hollywood columnist Hedda Hopper. And that just wasn't done that often back then. So Mad Mad World was really a kind of a a sea change in terms of how stunts and stunt people were regarded uh, within Hollywood. And yet there is still not an Oscar category for stunt work. Is that right? That's true. 
And I would have to say that I am optimistic that it will happen someday. The reason why I'm optimistic is in 1981, there was a brand new category introduced to the Academy Awards, and that was for best makeup. And it would seem that all of those preceding years before 1981, where you had all sorts of monster makeup and any other movie that you can think of, you would think that there would have already been an Academy Award, but there wasn't. So now, of course, there is one for makeup. I think eventually they'll come around. They'll see that that stunt work adheres to the very definition of what the Academy is about, and that is celebrating these movies that are created by artists and craftsmen, you know, with a mind towards art and science. And I think they'll come around eventually. Yeah. Well, I hope that eventually gets here sooner than later. That is a slow roll if it wasn't till the 80s that makeup was included. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Another film that you highlight is the 1980 Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi film, The Blues Brothers. Can you talk about the massive budget implications of their practical stunts? Yeah. So the backstory is John Landis, when he directed Animal House in 1978 for Universal, he kind of had his run of the kingdom, the keys to the car, so to speak. He could pr pretty much do anything he wanted. And so he wanted to make this what is essentially a live action Looney Tune cartoon that is one long epic chase with uh, Jake and Elwood Blues played by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi being chased by all sorts of people during the course of the movie. And, you know, they only had a limited budget to begin with, but as Landis insisted on bigger and better, faster and more bombastic stunts dealing with vehicles, with cars and trucks, the budget just continued to balloon. And the executives were very concerned that it was just getting way out of hand. But fortunately, every dollar that Landis spent really shows up on the screen. He reaches new levels of mayhem that, you know, it's it's hard to find other films that that approach it. And, you know, it's only only John Landis would take over a shopping mall, uh, one that was actually closed at the time, dress it up and make it look like a functioning mall, complete with thousands and thousands of dollars of merchandise all to have a car chase being set inside the mall and so as as the cars go to and fro they crash through all of that merchandise that they bought just to put it on the shelves so so to to put that kind of money all for the expense of having this tumultuous car chase you know it, it was a big it was just a big toy box and fortunately Landis had the best stunt people in the business at the time to pull it off. And boy, do they, it's, it's a, it's a magnificent, magnificent movie and such a great snapshot of what stunt people could do at that, at that time in 1980. No doubt. You also go behind the scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark and you spotlight that massive boulder run in the opening sequence I was surprised to find out that that is actually Harrison Ford running <laughs> away from, you know, not a massive boulder, but something that could have certainly hurt him. Yeah, it is surprising. But Ford, while he, he never has said that he is a 
an actor that does his own stunts. He calls himself an action actor, somebody who is willing to pull off certain things, but he's not, he's not the kind of person that is going to do the really dangerous stuff because he knows that he's the star. And if he gets hurt, then nobody works. But there were certain things that Spielberg and, and the um, stunt coordinator and the second unit director were, were willing to, to allow him to do uh, especially because be, given the way that they shot that sequence with the boulder roll and as such they worked it out they rehearsed it a bunch of times and got the timing down right so ford knew how fast he needed to run how fast the boulder was going to roll you know i'm sure they had some fail safe points where that he can duck off if he tripped or something and, and i'm sure there were some safety devices in place but as you said, if he had gotten hurt or if he had gotten run over by the boulder, while it probably wouldn't have killed him, yeah, it would have hurt. It would have hurt him bad. Yeah. Along the same lines, when you cover the Mission Impossible movies, would Tom Cruise also consider himself an action actor? I think so. Although I would call him a stunt star. Mm. This is a term that I've applied to people like Tom Mix, who was a big, big, huge star in the silent era, or also Buster Keaton, another shiny example of, of movie artistry. These are people that, uh, that were stars, but also were willing to indeed pull off their own stunts and some of the most dangerous stunts that you can imagine. And I think Tom Cruise falls within that category. When you look at behind the scenes photos, of him from the fourth film in the series, Ghost Protocol, there's a big sequence where he is, his character, Ethan Hunt, is scaling the outside of the world's tallest skyscraper, the Burj Khalifa in uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, that was not CGI. They really had Tom Cruise outside of that building. I think it was the 48th or something floor. I can't recall exactly how high he was enough to kill him had he fallen but that was really him and so the way they shot that sequence is they had him tethered to safety cables and in the post-production process all of those safety cables were were digitally erased but the danger was real i mean he really was out there i you gotta hand it to him you really gotta hand it to him he puts his money where his mouth is and and he he provides these kind of thrills that very, very few people have been able to pull off. I think his closest competitor, well, I should say contemporary, is probably Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan is just like Tom Cruise in that area, uh, only more so, I think. Yes, Jackie Chan. He is technically a stuntman, right? Yes. In fact, going back to the Academy Award question for a moment, there's been only a handful of people that had been recognized with an honorary Academy Award. The first one was uh, Yakima Kanut. That's a real individual, real name. <laughs> it's a great name. He's considered the uh, godfather of stunt work. And he was awarded one in 1966. And then in 2012, I think, there's a, a gentleman named Hal Needham, a former stuntman and director directed Smokey and the Bandit and several other pictures, he was given an honorary Academy Award for his stunt work. But I always consider Jackie Chan to be sort of the two and a half, <laughs> almost the third recipient, because 
Jackie Chan is really is really a stuntman, as you said, but he pulls them off in such a way that you just know that nobody else can do it. And and that's what makes him a star. It's really incredible. Yeah. And I and I should I should point out just briefly that, you know, a lot of the best films that Jackie Chan made in Hong Kong, particularly the there's a police story and Project A and Armor of God and several others. I don't really mention them much in the book. And the reason for that is I concentrated on films that received a large American release in the United States. And those films, while they have been shown in the United States, they they were not given a wide release, which really didn't occur to any of Jackie Chan's films until Rumble in the Bronx in 1995, which I do include in the book. Well, that makes sense. You have to set up parameters somewhere or your book would never end. I know. (laughs) Atlanta author Scott McGee will continue our conversation about his new book, Danger on the Silver Screen, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Atlanta author and film buff Scott McGee. His new book, Danger on the Silver Screen, is a celebration of stunt work. We've discussed history-making stunts like the car chase scene in 1971's The French Connection, as well as some craziness from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Mission Impossible. And here, McGee discusses the relationship between stunt people and their actor counterparts. I've talked with people who have been doubled and I've talked to, of course, many people who are doubles. And I think it's very much a close working relationship. The actor has to trust the stunt double to not only make him or her look good, but they also have to depend on that stunt double to carry on the work of creating a character. It's important to remember that stunt people, they are performers and they are performing as a character. And in many respects, when they are doubling the actor in a stunt, they have to perform that stunt as the character they are portraying. In other words, when they are falling out of a building, they have to fall as as how their character would fall. They have to drive the car as how their character would drive the car. And so it's very much a close collaboration. And offset, I would say that I think actors are extremely grateful for the work that stuntmen and stuntwomen do, not just in terms of what they bring to the screen in in collaboration, but also the things that the actors often put those stunt people through. I tell a story of uh, Charlize Theron in making the film Atomic Blonde in 2015, I believe. She said that she gave her stunt people a lot of bottles of wine due to all the hits that they took, but didn't have to take from her in the execution a lot in a lot of the fight sequences, because Aww. as a as an actor, you know you don't often pull your punch the way a professional stuntman would, and so. Sometimes the oh, stunt dang. people, sometimes the stunt people really do get socked in the face with a fist. 
And so, so there's a, there's a great deal of gratitude and a lot of uh, apologies, I should say, but it, in many, many respects, it's a, it's a very, very close working relationship. Can you tell us about the stunt person inspired safety last society of the 1920s? Yeah, that was a, there was a 1923 film called safety last, which starred one of the biggest box office draws of the 1920s. And that his name was Harold Lloyd and Harold Lloyd. Some of your listeners may be familiar with perhaps one of the most famous images in all of movie history. And that is the familiar image of a man hanging from the hands of a clock on the, on top of a building. That image is from safety last. So the premise of the movie has Harold Lloyd having to climb scale the outside of a department store building and the department store is probably 20 or 30 stories high he has to do it as a publicity stunt to draw attention to his store well he hires though a man named bill struther that was his name in real life and bill struther in real life was a human fly uh, he was an individual who as i mentioned earlier he was a steeplejack who specialized in being able to scale tall buildings without any equipment. He did it all freestyle. And Lloyd had had seen him perform earlier in the 20s and immediately had the idea of, of centering a motion picture around Bill Struthers' abilities. And so that's how that came about. But that film inspired other people to climb the outsides of buildings themselves. And so there was a gentleman who started what he called the, the Safety Last Society. And it was dedicated to those who would, you know, take on these foolish escapades. He climbed a building in New York City. I think it was the Hotel Martinique, I believe it was called. He unfortunately did not have very good luck because he reached, I think, the ninth floor and lost his footing and fell to his death. I included a, a headline of that ghastly event. So it just, it just emphasizes that, you know, the danger is often real, what you see on screen. For sure. Do you have a favorite film that you covered within the book? Yeah, I think so. I, I would say it's the 1928 film Steamboat Bill Jr., which stars uh, Buster Keaton. And this film is one of the greatest comedies ever made. And it features a sequence, which I think has the single greatest stunt ever. And the setup to this gag is Keaton plays this character who is, he's in a, a small town and there's a cyclone or a, I should say a tornado that comes through and the wind buffets him back and forth down the streets. And he's dazed and confused by getting battered back and forth well he ends up kind of loopy in front of a house and behind him unbeknownst to keaton the wall of the house the entire wall of the house starts to fall forward onto him now the wall completes its fall in one cut and he passes through it safely due to an open window on the second floor of the wall your listeners can watch this on YouTube. And the way Keaton performed this gag, he performs it 
squarely in character. He never loses focus of what he's about to do. And he stands lock still. And it's one of the, it's actually one of the few stunts where the performer is, is standing absolutely still, but it's such a breathtaking, audacious moment. It's hard to imagine anybody else even thinking about doing it because I should note the wall, it was probably two or 3000 pounds. It wasn't a phony wall. It wasn't made of yucca nutty, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> it was real wooden brick and it had real weight to it. And had Keaton's measurements been off, uh, he would have been killed instantly. And I just think that one stunt kind of crystallizes just, you know, what we often leave the theaters talking about, you know, when, when you see the 1959 film, Ben-Hur, you don't leave the theater talking about one of the earlier scenes involving Ben-Hur's sister and mother. No, you, you leave it thinking about the chariot race. So it's an element of the movie making process that is just endlessly fascinating for me. Understandable. Well, I would love to close on what I consider to be maybe the most Atlanta action movie ever created, Baby Driver. <laughs> yeah. What is the connection with music and stunts that's going on in Baby Driver? Well, Edgar Wright, when I interviewed him, he told me how he came up with this idea. It's actually a a, a song he was listening to years ago called, I think it's called Bell Bottoms. It's a John Spencer song. He, he thought, there you go. He thought it would make a great cut to build a car chase around. And so he just extrapolated from there and thought, what if you built the entire movie to the beat of whatever song you're hearing? And so throughout the film, it is cut and shot like almost like a musical. And indeed, Edgar Wright is a huge fan of um, the films of Busby Berkeley, who is a an important director and choreographer in the in the 30s. He choreographed dance sequences for films like 42nd Street and the Gold Diggers of 1933 and many others. Well, he shot Baby Driver almost like a Busby Berkeley musical. And to that point, he also conceived of and shot the, the stunt scenes like a musical. And so in working with his stunt people, with his stunt coordinator and second unit director and his um, stunt drivers, they all to be kind of in the in the same on the same sheet of music so to speak in pulling all of this together and it, it's such a fun movie to watch and I'm, I'm so glad that it was shot in Atlanta you know he didn't originally have it set in Atlanta he originally wanted to do it in California in Los Angeles but because there are so many other classic car chases that have been shot in LA he thought maybe having a change of scenery would you know, would do the trick. And, and indeed, I think it did. Indeed. And what a lovely note to end on. Scott McGee, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about danger on the silver screen. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Kim. I appreciate it. Atlanta author and film buff, Scott McGee. More information about his new book, Danger on the Silver Screen, is on our website, wabe.org. 
You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., former NBA All-Star author and artist Joe Barry Carroll stops by. His new exhibition, My View from Seven Feet, is currently on view at Hammond's house. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.